the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone, and you are listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. This morning, I have two guests joining me. Actually, I have three guests, but uh, the first guest is Dr. Rebecca Gladding, a physician and author of You Are Not Your Brain, The Four-Step Solution for Changing Bad Habits, Eating Unhealthy Thinking, Ending Unhealthy Thinking, and Taking Control of Your Life. Um, she co-authored this book with Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz. The second half of the show, we do have two guests who are going to be on together. They co-authored the book, Smart Customers, Stupid Companies, Why Only Intelligent Companies Will Thrive and How to Be One of Them, Michael Hinshaw and Bruce Kasanoff. But first we have Dr. Rebecca Gladding. Uh, you Are Not Your Brain, The Four-Step Solution for Changing Bad Habits, Ending Unhealthy Thinking, and Taking Control of Your Life, which is something I think we all want to do or need to do at one time or another. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gladding. Oh, thank you for having me. Great to have you. I mean, your book, of course, is uh, the reason I like it, I have to say, is because it's very practical. Uh, we all have bad habits. We all use them in inappropriate ways. And you have a very clear, um, as you say, four-step approach to changing our bad habits. Okay. What are, can you define bad habits for us, first of all? Oh, sure. I mean, it can be anything from checking your cell phone, you know, your texts, your emails all the time, um, over snacking. Things that people don't think about, like perfectionism, overthinking, overanalyzing. Um, other habits we have, we don't say what we think or we need in relationships. We avoid parts of our lives out of fear, um, anything like that. Obviously, the, you know, the ones most people think about, smoking or drinking or, or, or doing other kinds of detrimental things that really we wish we weren't doing for one reason or another. Right. That is a good laundry list of our bad habits. I think you've <laughs> named most of them. Um, so what happens? You're, you're saying that you know, we, we, we have developed these bad habits. Um, I, you, in the book, you describe, describe them, I think, as deceptive brain messages. We get these brain messages that tell us to do that, but we aren't our brains. So right. how, how, does this all, how do we change it? What do we do, and why are we getting these messages? Sure. So, so the, there's... A, many parts to this. I mean, one part is just purely biological. The brain, there's a part called the hypothalamus, and that's where a lot of our drives, our instinctual drives like hunger and thirst and sex, that's where those come from. So some of it literally is just the brain is, is causing these things to bubble up. But then the other thing is that in our lives, uh, the brain is so adaptable. If we somehow end up pairing, say, stress with drinking alcohol or stress with eating, you know, chocolate or carbs or whatever. We can teach the brain that every time I feel stressed, every time something triggers me, then go do that thing because there's this part of the brain called the habit center that acts in a very automatic way. And so we can unconsciously train our brains in very unhelpful ways to do these things, and, and the brain doesn't care. It just does, you know, what we tell it to do, what we teach it. 
And so the idea between, behind our book and, and the reason we call it You Are Not Your Brain is to help people understand that there's so much more than these thoughts, these urges, these impulses that have come up from the brain. And that if you use mindfulness or, you know, our four-step method or something else that might work for you, that you can actually retrain your brain so that it's working for you rather than against you. So these bad habits are auto automatic responses kind of that we've established, but we yeah. can change those. Exactly. I want to, and because it's such a huge problem, literally a huge problem, mm-hmm. is our overweight and obesity problem here in right. the United States, right? Two-thirds yep. of us are overweight and obese. So let's take your um, your method of being able to kind of, you call it, reframe or, or change our habits in the context of overeating. How can we help all these people? Or can we do it with, with, um, with your suggestions? Well, I think we can as long as the the person in question is uh, motivated and willing to put forth the effort. I mean, nothing really is going to work unless you want to do it and you're willing to put forth the time and and deal with the daily struggles. Um, But assuming all of that's there, the thing we have to figure out is why. Why is this person overeating? Is it because he or she is stressed? Is it because they're angry about something? Are they bored? Are, you know, have they just learned that, oh, I come home and I eat two bags of chips and this is what I do, or I don't know portion control? Like, we need to figure out why. And, and once we get the why, then we can use something like the four steps. So say this person overeats because they're stressed. Use that as an example. Our first step is called relabel. And the idea is that you want to identify what we're calling deceptive brain messages, but really these thoughts, these urges, these negative things that are popping up in your head, and call them what they are. And and the reason you want to do that is if you're not aware of what's going on, you certainly can't change what's happening. So in this case, you would relabel it as, "I'm, I'm getting stressed, and it's causing urges for me to go eat chips or whatever. Step two, then, reframe is where you change your perception of the importance of these negative messages coming into your head. You say, oh, you know what, this is a false brain message. I just ate my dinner a half an hour ago. I don't need these chips right now. My brain's just telling me this because I've trained it over time that, you know, this is what we do. But but I don't have to take every thought and urge as at face value, and I certainly don't have to make it you know, the most important thing in my life at that moment. So that's what reframing is. Step three, refocus, is actually where you start to change the brain. And because of some specific science, it, it very much is true that the more you focus your attention, that's what changes the, the pathways in the brain, makes one pathway stronger, makes another one weaker. And so refocus is about directing your attention towards something that's good for you even while you're having these uncomfortable sensations or thoughts or urges. So you're not distracting yourself. You're really trying to let the feeling be there and say, you know what, I'm just not going to give you the power, and I'm going to go for a walk, or I'm going to call my friend or play with my dog or whatever it might be. And is then, it really difficult to do that? I mean, I'm, oh, I'm listening. Course. Yeah, because when you talk about stress, we all have stress. <clears throat> and, I mean, you, the stress is always going to be there. So what you're saying is it's how we handle the stress, what we do with the stress in terms of our behavior. Exactly. And some of us overeat. Uh, we're using that example. So you have to be aware that when you are under stress, whatever it is, the, the first thing that you tend to do is go for the chips or, you know, the chocolate cake or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Yep. So you have, but, and, and I think it's really important. I, I know when you, we're going through the process, but that whole thing of being aware. Right. Is that like similar to 
mindful meditation or being mindful of what you're eating? Oh, it absolutely is. And, and the book is based off of mindfulness. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so the, really what Relabel is, is making mental notes, um, which is a, a kind of beginning part of mindfulness. Um, but the, like I said before, the idea is if, you, if you're always stuck in the future or in the past, right? If you're stressed, you're probably thinking you know, about what happened during the day, so you're in the past, or you're thinking about what's going to happen in the future, you're worrying about it. You can't tell what's actually happening in your body and, and what's happening with you in that moment. And so that's when that habit center just takes over and says, oh, okay, now you're stressed, we go get the chips. So the mindfulness part, being aware of what's going on, is really what's going to give you the power to start making the changes. And, and so that's why Relabel is the first step. That's enhancing your awareness. And I, I want to add to that because it's obviously it's been in the news, and I'm in New York City, actually. Uh, you know, Mayor Bloomberg, and this has been all over the news, oh, yeah. Uh, has you know said that you know he wants to pass a, a, a law in the city that you can't buy uh, soft drinks that are over thirty two uh, over thirty two ounces and mm-hmm. people are it sort of fits into your theory because it's like and, and people are complaining and they're saying you know they have a right to do that and all but he's not saying you can't buy thirty two ounces you, you just have to it's really you have to be mindful of what you're buying you can right. buy two sixteen ounce if you want to if you have to it's going to be more expensive take more time. But it will really, he didn't say this, but it will take more time and you'll have to be more mindful of what you're doing. So it right. kind of really fits into your theory, I think, does it? I think so, yeah. And yeah. It, it also helps people with portion control. I mean, because when, when you're at the store and it's only 10 cents more for 16 ounces more, you know, you think, oh, okay, well, I'll get that. It's a better deal. But then you drink it and you get all those calories and, and it becomes more of a problem for you. Yeah. I think that I, that's why I think that your book is so... It's really so on target, that whole idea of being that first step of being really mindful of what you're doing. Right. And then, yeah. And did I, I interrupted you. We didn't get to the last, did we? Oh, no, yeah. But re, the step four relabel, or sorry, revalue is, it's basically a, where you step back. And over time, this is actually progressive mindfulness. Um, we describe it in the book. But, but the idea is that over time, if you're paying well enough attention to what's going on in your body, you kind of start to instantly know, oh, this is the feeling of a craving. This is the feeling of a negative message. You, you take it out of it being a real thing, and you, you see it as an event, and you say, oh, this is what's happening, but this doesn't define me. This isn't something I have to pay attention to, and in fact, it has really little value in my life overall. And so I'm, I'm just going to keep moving forward in the ways I want. Um, and so that's, that's basically what the revalue step is. Also, don't you start getting, one gets rewarded for the good behavior. Let's say, you know, you start being aware of the food you're eating and you go through the process that you just described, and then you start to lose weight. Right. So a lot of other things kind of germinate from that, which are good things, I would Absolutely. think. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, but as you said earlier, it takes time. And so for the first few weeks, people will feel like nothing's happening. Um, and so we tell people to journal and, and do things to really note the, the successes they are having um, because the, the truth is it takes a while to retrain your brain and it takes a while to change these habits. And so it really does take a, a good amount of, of repetition and, and working through this for a while before it, it really makes the changes that you want. You talk about um, journaling because I think that's important too. When you're journaling, what do you do? Do you have your little notebook with you all the time, or your iPhone, and you're like putting it in your contacts, or what? Do you, you know, it, when you... 
It totally depends on the person. I mean, we had some folks who just would write things down at the end of the day. We had some who, as you're saying, had a running list throughout the day. It, it, whatever works for the person. I mean, what we really want for them is to be able to see, oh, I was able to resist doing X, Y, and Z today, or I did these positive things for myself today. Um, and so that that way when they're feeling down or when they're feeling like, oh, this isn't working, nothing's happening, they can go back and go like, oh, no, I actually, I've, I've done these things. I've actually done more than I thought. You know, that's what we're hoping for. Does it also help to talk to people? To You know, I think talking to people sometimes as well as journaling, that makes it real too, and then you get feedback from people who support you? Absolutely, as long as it's supportive. I mean, you know, sometimes you can talk to people and they get you more anxious or they they do other things. You just have to make sure that it, it really is kind of a supportive um, conversation that you're having. But, yeah, absolutely. So what do you do when you don't get the support? That brings up another issue. I mean, I'm a social worker, so I'm always looking at that side of it, too. Right. Let's say you want to change your brain. You're changing your habits. We're talking about weight. It could be any other bad habit. It could be uh, drinking, whatever. And your spouse or your partner, the person that you live with or your, your child, doesn't support you. So how does that fit into the picture? Well, that's when you really, I think, need to believe in yourself and, and say to yourself, I deserve this. And I think a lot of what happens is that people... The reason people don't make changes or, you know, why they only make changes for a little bit of time is because they're basing it on desire <clears throat> rather than on a, a sustained belief in themselves. So if you look at people who make New Year's resolutions, you know, they, they do it for a couple of weeks because it's just based on desire. But, but the truth is desire ebbs and flows. It, it's a, you know, a brain kind of mechanism, and, and it's not going to sustain us in the long term. And there's actually research that shows this. But if you're willing to put forth the effort because you believe in yourself or you believe that you really want things to be different, then you'll be able to do it. So obviously having more support is better. And, and if someone can't support you, I, I would probably want them to just say, like, look, this is really important to me. And if you can't support it, at least don't get in my way while I'm doing this because it is good for me and it is something I want. Um, and then I would hope that that person would find other people in their lives that, that can somehow support them through the process. Are there support groups um, <clears throat> that, that do this? I mean, actual support groups that, you know, follow uh, these, the, the four-step solution where you could actually go to and, and get the outside external or outside support that maybe you're not getting in your family or... We haven't developed anything yet. I know I've, I've seen a couple of places online where people have done book groups and some other things. Um, <clears throat> at UCLA, we have a group that's been running for many, many years. Um, but that's certainly something that we're, we're looking into because I think it would be helpful for folks. Now, getting back to the research, where did this all come from? Because uh, obviously you've been doing research, and it's based on science. It's, it's not just theoretical. It's that there are really some very practical science um, experiments that you've done. So uh, tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So the, the real genesis of, of this work came from my co-author, Dr. Schwartz, back in the 90s, where he took people with obsessive-compulsive disorder and had them either take medication or use the four steps for, I think it was about 10 weeks. Uh, during that time, he scanned their brains at the beginning and then after the 10 weeks, and he was able to show that the four steps changed people's brains in positive ways the same amount as medication and in the same areas. And from that, he was able to basically show that, that a mindfulness-based method could do what medication can do. Um, and so that gives support for the four steps. And then since then, 
there's been an explosion of research that shows how it is that mindfulness works. Um, you know, specifically when we were talking about uh, mental notes, uh, Matthew Lieberman has come up with uh, a bunch of studies, which he called affect labeling, but literally it's just naming the emotion or the feeling that you're seeing in front of you in a brain scanner. <clears throat> and what it shows is that when you do label an emotion or label an event, you take the uh, focus in the brain from yourself. There's actually a self-referencing part of your brain. It's called the medial prefrontal cortex. But um, you take it from self and you move it to this uh, more outside part of the brain that is more objective. And so it allows you to evaluate what's happening from a more objective, rational standpoint than from this more subjective me standpoint. Um, and so, so those are just a, a couple of examples of, of the things that have gone on. I guess the other one I would say is <clears throat> the uh, research that's been going on in, into how habits uh, form and how hard they are to change is really based on the idea of neuroplasticity, the idea that the brain can change over time. I mean, in the 50s, they thought the brain you had is what you had. It never changes. And that's where the you get the uh, old dogs can't learn new tricks kind of was, adage. Dr. Gladding, was that because we couldn't look at the brain? Now that we have the, the ability to look at the brain like we have had, you know, probably for a lot, we have for a longer period of time, you know, we looked at the heart and the structures of the heart and we, we could see how it was working or not working. And now we have the scientific uh, means to actually look at brain functioning. It is, yeah, exactly. And we can actually start now to look at uh, nerve tracks, you know, axonal tracks that we couldn't see even probably 10 years ago. So the research is getting, you know, better and better, and our ability to look in is getting better as well. Absolutely. So what, ha- I mean, I find that fascinating, that neuroplasticity, and it, it, it is, I guess, it's a new field, or relatively new field, and mm-hmm. It seems to me, I mean, you, know, you, you just mentioned you can't teach old dogs new tricks, but with the aging population and people living to be 80s and 90-year-old, you know, that they can actually change their brain. They, I don't exactly. Want to, can't, yep. Yeah, change their behavior. <clears throat> yeah, and that, that's the point is that, you know, the, the old thinking was that way, but the new thinking, because we've seen it, I mean, you can see it after someone's had a stroke, that... The, the part of the brain that's been damaged, you know, say someone can't move their right arm, uh, if they keep working in physical therapy, an adjacent part of the brain will take over the function and help them start to use their right arm. I mean, that is a, a beautiful example of neuroplasticity. Um, <clears throat> and people can, can always be changing their brains, always be changing their behaviors. Um, so, yeah, age doesn't matter. It, it's more about how you focus your attention and how much effort um, and repetition you, you put into it. Yeah, another piece of that, is, and I'm going, speaking about the aging population because I deal with a lot of people, uh, you know, in uh, practice and uh, in the aging population, people, uh, in order to maintain your brain, I don't know how to say this, but so that your brain is, as you age, um, you're as sharp or as smart as you have been, uh, do something different every day. Like you gave the example, if you have a stroke and after a while you can't use your left hand, but if you, you can train yourself to, to be able to even to regain the use of your left hand by training mm-hmm. your brain. But you can also, if you, like say you're right-handed, I'm sort of going around in circles with this, but if you're right-handed and you, you use your left hand, 
let's say, every day doing mm-hmm. something, drinking a cup of coffee, uh, that that stimulates your brain as you get older to be, it sort of keeps it on its toes, so to speak, like because you've learned a, a, a completely new task. Is that... Yeah, any, anything involving strategy um, or complicated thinking. So people who do crosswords, people who do Sudoku, things like that, um, their minds tend to stay sharper longer, um, according to the research. And, and it's for that reason. It's because it's, it's challenging, it's causing us to think, it's causing us to learn. Um, and any of those things absolutely can, can help us as we age. But I thought if you do crossword puzzles and say you've been doing crossword puzzles since you were 16, mm-hmm. that it's not going to have the same beneficial effect because you're not doing something new. You are doing something that's challenging, but it's not a, you're not retraining your brain to learn something new. Yes, I mean, that's fair. I, I, think, I think you could go either way, but I, I, I think you're right that in, I just hadn't thought about it this way, but yeah, the more different new things you can learn, certainly that's going to, you know, activate different circuits and keep those circuits alive and going. So, yeah. Talk to us about some of the cases or the case studies or the uh, individuals who have made really, you know, that you've had experience with uh, significant changes. I mean, we were talking about, uh, you know, food and overeating and overweight, but there are other bad habits. Um, you know, give us an example of another bad habits and maybe an example of a case study. Oh, sure. So, I mean, one of the ones we use in the book is a Broadway performer who had 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 just done very well in his life um, performing on the stage, and then he started to develop uh, fears of rejection and stage fright to the point that he couldn't go on stage anymore, and he actually gave up his career. The other part is that because he had all of these fears of rejection, he stopped asking women out, and he stopped going out on dates, and, and so he was living a very kind of isolated life. And basically what we had him do um, was work through the four steps and also practice going out and what are doing what are called achievable behavioral goals. So basically you would just, you know, say, I'm going to say hi to five people today or <clears throat> I'm going to ask three people for their phone numbers. Not I'm going to get three numbers, but I'm going to ask. So an achievable behavioral goal. So we worked through things like that with him. And what's really amazing is that after, after doing the work with the four steps, after doing some of this other work that I did with him individually, he ended up having a girlfriend, and he has gone out. He actually went to auditions. He got a few parts, and um, you know, he's just been doing really well. And you need to come to New York and help us. <laughs> <laughs> we need you here. Oh, yeah. Act, act, actors' <clears throat> equity, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so, you know, that's... That's one pretty powerful example in the book, and, and he's someone who's quite eloquent, and so we use him in the book to try to help people understand, you know, the, the deceptive brain messages that came up for him, and, and, you know, he just kept thinking he was a second-class citizen, that he wasn't good enough, and, and really getting him to understand that he was good enough. It was the, these false messages for coming from when he was a younger man um, really helped him you know, kind of come out of that, that shell and, and live a much fuller life. Do you have to be a, a sophisticated uh, patient or client to be able to go through this process? No, I don't think so. I mean, it, it really depends on what you're dealing with, obviously. But if, if you're, you know, working on food, if you're working on smoking or, or whatever, I mean, the, the four steps are relatively straightforward. I think it becomes a little more complicated when you're dealing with 
strong emotions that are tied to certain behaviors, and you might need a little more help then. All right, give um, us an example of that. <clears throat> well, even even like what we're well, a, a good example of that would be someone who's drinking a lot. We have a, a businessman in in the book who basically saw everyone around him as very needy and helpless, and and this would frustrate him um, to no end to the point that when he would come home at night, he would drink alcohol just to kind of distance himself emotionally from people. So he just didn't have to deal with his family, he didn't have to deal with people at work. And the more and more he did this, the more and more he drank. Um, and, you know, for someone like him, if, if the drinking gets too far out of control, then you might need a program. You might need to, you know, go to something every day for a while until you're able to get more control over the substance. Um, the reason being that the, you know, the four steps is going to work well as long as you can see there's a problem and really kind of understand that, uh, that the brain is sending false messages. If the biology is too strong, then you might need a little more help with a, a structured program or a therapist or something like that. So, Dr. Gladden, you may be talking about the person who has a full-blown addiction, or exactly. that it sounds like this guy, this this man did or does, right. um, and that would apply, I guess, to drugs as well. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So you, yeah. So, but with this that bell-shaped curve, we most of us fall somewhere in the middle. Exactly. Right. And, and so this does work for us. Give us some other examples. I mean, I think that really helps listeners. I mean, I know that you have lots of them in the book, but, the, you know, the ones that stands out, because that, that kind of put, you know, put the theory into practice. Oh, sure. Well, we had a, a, an English teacher who was constantly checking email um, because he was convinced that his girlfriend of two years was going to leave him. Um, <clears throat> everything in their relationship seemed fine. There was no reason to, to think that this was going to happen, but... He was, he was driving himself, um, you know, constantly trying to check email, trying to think, oh, why, is she, why hasn't she responded? What's going on? Maybe she's mad at me, um, things like that. So, you know, for him, the, the thing to do was to <clears throat> just stop checking his email so much and, and to sit with the uncomfortable feeling of maybe something's wrong, but, you know, someone will tell you if there is something wrong. So we worked with him. Um, there's another woman who pretty much just doubted herself all the time and assumed that she was doing something wrong. You know, the example in the book is her boss comes out to talk to her and he looks a little annoyed or something's off, and she immediately assumes that there's something wrong with her or that she made a mistake. But in reality, all that had happened was that he had had an argument with his girlfriend uh, right before she came out and talked to him. So, you know, so there's another area where people were you know, using perfectionism, overanalyzing um, to, to their detriment. And one of the things we talk about in the book is the fact that overthinking is actually a habit, and that's something that people don't often realize. Um, <clears throat> we try to make the distinction in the book that the initial thought, the initial urges or impulses are bubbling up from the brain, and that you have no control over that initial thought, but that everything after that you do have control over. So, you might feel uneasy, but once you start saying, well, it might have been this, or maybe he said that, or what if I had done this differently, or I could do this tomorrow, all of that is actually a habit. And, and that you can break if you really start to pay attention to it and use the four steps. Uh, yeah, and I as I'm, I'm listening to you, and I'm sort of like analyzing myself with that, <laughs> and that overthinking, I mean, that really hits the mark with me, that, yeah. that, 
that stuff that you keep going up when you wake up in the middle of the night and you think right. of something and then you overthink it and overthink it leads to insomnia and, and a whole lot of other things. But right. um, yeah, that's um, we have a couple minutes left, so I want um, everybody listeners to know uh, they can buy the book online, bookstores everywhere. But mm-hmm. any websites you want to direct them to specifically? Oh, sure. the The book's website is the name of the book, so it's youarenotyourbrain.com. YouAreNotYourBrain.com, and it's the four-step solution for changing bad habits, ending unhealthy thinking, and taking control of your life. Great book. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's a practical. I always, I, you know, when I have people on or authors on, I love these practical books because yeah. I'm sitting here figuring out how I can apply it to myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, thanks, doctor, for being on the show this morning. Absolutely, Doctor, Dr. Rebecca Gladding. You are not your brain. I'm Catherine Zox, and I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We are going to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to be talking to the authors of Smart Customers, Stupid Companies, Why Only Intelligent Companies Will Thrive and How to Be One of Them. And the co-authors of the book are Michael Hinshaw and Bruce Kasanoff. Don't go away. sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Do you need directions to solve financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Listen to us live every Wednesdays from 10 to 11 Eastern Time. Well, joining me now are my next guests, my, uh, Michael Hinshaw and Bruce Kasanoff, and they're authors of Smart Customers, Stupid Companies, Why Only Intelligent Companies Will Thrive and How to Be One of Them. So they ask the question, how does it feel to be CEO of a company with 
$700 million invested in your retail stores and only to watch customers actually standing inside their stores and you, you your store and use uh, smartphones to order lower-priced products from competitors, which happens all the time. I see it happening all the time. Uh, that's one of the problems. Um, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Michael and Bruce. Thank you, Catherine. Marketing you, experts as well, obviously, marketing experts and authors. So where do we want to start? You're saying that customers are getting smarter and smarter, and you have listed many reasons in the book, and are companies getting stupider and stupider, or what's happening? Uh, let, let me jump in first. This is Bruce. Bruce? It, okay. it's, it's not that companies are getting dumber. It's that the, this wave of wireless, smartphone, iPad, you know, digital technology has tremendously changed the customer capability. That is, you know, you can stand in the store and check prices. You can talk to other people. You can have friends or people you don't even know warn you away from doing business with someone and steer you to someone with whom they've had a good experience. That's all happened, and it's unleashed a tremendous wave of creativity from app developers. You know, 800,000 people and small companies have developed apps that have gone directly to consumers. And over the course of the three, four, five years that that has all happened, companies have pretty much stayed the same. So it's not that they've gotten so much dumber, it's just that they haven't advanced while the rest of us have. And that's opened up this huge chasm between customer expectations and what we want to do and how we want to be treated and the way companies, especially bigger companies, are doing business. Now, the flip side of that is that it's a really good time to be an entrepreneur. So, Michael, I'm thinking, you know, Bruce's example, I mean, and I just started doing this. You know, if I go to a hotel and I'm deciding what restaurant, I always check on TripAdvisor. Or if I'm sitting, maybe this is your example, at a restaurant and I'm not getting good service or the food isn't good enough, I mean, I have my iPhone there and I check on TripAdvisor and see if someone's had a similar experience as I because maybe they're trying to make it my problem and I say, hmm, I'm not really, it's not my problem. You know, I see that, uh, you know, there are a lot of other customers who've had the same problem. Is this what you're talking about? And absolutely. And you can extend that not just from the standpoint of bringing information to you through your phone, but sending information back out to others. So you're sitting in that same restaurant and you pull up Yelp and you say, you know, here's an example. My wife actually did this uh, about three weeks ago. We're in a nice restaurant. $14 glass of uh, Zinfandel comes to the table and it had about an inch and a half of wine in it. She takes a photo of it, posts it on Yelp and says, $14 bottle of wine. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's a great example. Okay, so what happened in the restaurant or at the bar? What Did, did, they, did you tell them that you did it? Uh, were they aware or what? I suspect that the answer is no. Um, it's essentially a new way for consumers uh, in all industries to have a voice that potentially they didn't have before, and ultimately the, the net effect of those voices together should cause companies to stand up and take notice, potentially take change. Some do and some don't. But what are the reasons? About, why would what, what are some of the reasons, Bruce, why companies wouldn't stand up and do something about it? Well, I, I think that there you can't overstate inertia. You can't overstate that the, the forces that are at work in big companies are um, they they kind of make customers invisible. And I, I know that sounds crazy, but Michael and I have both been in customer focused, um, you know, industry for. 15 or 20 years, each of us, 
And so what happens, for example, in a large company is that you you have your job. You work for a boss. Your boss works for a boss. Each of you have budgets. Each of you have ways that you get paid. For example, you might get paid because you sell one product. You're your product manager for one product. So you don't really care. That is, you're not compensated for the customer's overall experience. You're not paid to follow a customer around and make sure that that Catherine has had a good experience, you're paid for can we sell, instead of selling a million of these products, can we sell two million next year? And, and on and on and on, where the, it, it, customers get lost in that mix. And, and in many companies, there's just not a culture that says, A, the customer is more important than anything. Most companies making money is more important than anything, and, and that means selling products making products and selling them, not finding out what the customer needs and then doing what the customer wants. Uh, But the other thing is I think it's extremely difficult for companies. Let me give you, if you want to use a new app, it takes you about 30 seconds to download it. If a company, a Fortune 1000 company, wants to embrace that app or that technology, they have to make sure that, all of the computers and all of the databases in their organization can cope with that, that it's secure enough. And they will give you a litany of details that you and I would never think about that's, quote, stopping them from doing this. And the net result of it is, is that it opens up opportunities for, for individuals and small businesses and startups that don't have to worry about, well, gee, you know, Division A wants to get paid a certain way all they're doing is saying, look, customers are frustrated. We'll do something about it. Well, as you're talking and describing it, I'm thinking old companies, big companies, huge corporations, they're dinosaurs. Maybe they will just die out. I mean, what do you think? I mean, what, what's your response to that, Michael? Well, I think that uh, both Bruce and I have a, a pretty strong point of view, and that is that organizations have a, a couple of big choices. Uh, those that make the choice to, you know, as we say in the title of our book, become intelligent. Intelligent as uh, defined by understanding their customers, actually figuring out not only how valuable customers are to them, what those customers want and need. Uh, so on a personal level, um, understanding how to anticipate customer needs by accessing all the data that surrounds their customers. And you think about how much information companies gather from each and every one of us every day and the digital trails that we're leaving. Ultimately, companies have the ability to learn to know everything about us, but they don't. The only thing they seem to remember sometimes is how much money we owe them or when we, you know, paid the bill or did not. And uh, those kinds of organizations that don't embrace intelligence are eventually going to die out. Um, And those that put the customer at the center of their world, that put, you know, access to an understanding of the data that surrounds their customers as a, a core part of their you know, business metrics and the way that they look at the world are going to succeed. As Bruce pointed out, it's much more difficult for bigger companies to do this. But when you think about the entrepreneurial world, the ability to you know, get a group of developers together around solving a single problem and having that solution grow is much easier. But large corporations can still take those same steps. Essentially, big companies need to start thinking like startups. Well, I think what you're saying is, and or, I mean, these big companies do have the ability to get all this information about us. They do have the money and the, the resources to do that. 
So they need to get the information and then use it. I mean, you point out in the book there are four, and I want to go through these, because four disruptive forces that are changing the basic ground rules for business competition. I mean, we've kind of, we have been talking about them, but let's get really specific. I mean, social influence, um, that's, let's talk about that, because that, that's a, you describe it as a dis- disruptive force um, that is changing, yeah, changing yeah. business competition, which it is. Sure. It's th- social influence is, is essentially the impact of social media, which we all know, Facebook, LinkedIn, all these different, Google+. But what it does is it puts other people between a company and its customers. So it, if you process this thought that never again, never again will companies be able to directly influence how customers feel about them without other people being in the middle of that. That's social influence. So, you know, it's what we started this conversation with. You're, you're, you're thinking of ordering a product from a company. It used to be you would just order the product. Today, there's all these people in the middle who are saying, no, wait, stop. You might get a better deal. There might be a better price. That product's not very good. This product is better. That's social influence. And companies and marketing executives who have grown up thinking, we can control. You know, I mean, so many people who are in marketing grew up in the era of we do image, you know, ads on TV and on the radio, and we control our brand. Well, you don't control your brand anymore. You influence your brand, but you don't. And, and that of the four changes is really the most basic. I mean, that is here today. What, ha- what hasn't quite permeated <laughs> in, in the thought process is, no, seriously, you don't control your brand anymore. I'm just going to Yeah, I just want to, well, I want to ask you, Michael, then. Yeah. Um, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think that, that that is true. But let's say given that, I mean, never again can companies control their, their customers like they used to. Um, so, so then what do they actually do about that? I mean, they have to, that, that, if that's a given, the social influence that we all have available to us to, you know, to help us determine whether we're going to buy something or um, what, what does a company do? Well, either, both of you, either one. Yeah, there's multiple parts uh, to, to that answer, but the, the first is an organization needs to understand that transparency rules, they can't keep secrets, which is something the corporations have always kind of you know, held their data close. But in a world where, you know, think about, for example, customer satisfaction data, you, you talked about TripAdvisor, uh, we mentioned Yelp as an example. There are dozens of others. Every time a customer is unsatisfied, that data is going to be available to every other potential customer, even false and misleading statements. So, you know, just because you're unhappy with a service, organizations need to be able to see that even false and misleading, false and misleading statements can get out into the marketplace. So ultimately what that means is the traditional, you know, as Bruce is talking about, the, the image advertising, that's kind of top-down branding. Moving forward, bottom-up is what's going to rule. So organizations need to understand and listen to their customers. And you think about word of mouth as being, that's the number one influence on con- consumers' purchasing decisions. I, I've also seen them respond. There are actually, I think, some organizations, I know one of the big uh, uh, hotel corporations that's in, in New York, they have, just, they have people who abs- respond to the stuff that they see, let's say, on TripAdvisor or Yelp or whatever it is, uh, you know, to a customer who wasn't satisfied, and then they, now they're responding to those, those comments. Absolutely. And if you uh, 
you know, consider the impact as a consumer of an organization, that, even a brand that you love that, you know, potentially did you wrong, if they reach out and fix that for you, ultimately that has the effect of turning you into even greater advocates because everyone makes mistakes. As consumers, we recognize that. You know, we're willing to give the benefit of the doubt. It's the companies that do something that makes us unhappy or we feel isn't fair and then ignore our complaints that really take people off. Yeah, that make us the victim or blame the customer. Absolutely. Yeah. Which, uh, let's go on to the next one, pervasive memory. Um, Bruce, talk to us about that. What's pervasive memory? How is sure. that affecting companies and, and their competitive edge? Every interaction that any of us do through a digital device, so through a smartphone, through an iPad, through a computer, through a laptop, any digital device, the automation, if your home is wired to a home security system, all of those leave a record. They leave a record in, in usually many databases. And that information can be used by companies to benefit customers or it can be used by companies to track and be intrusive to customers. It also can be used by all of us you know, in the way that we've been talking about. You know, TripAdvisor is just an example of that. That changes the rules of how you have to operate because... I mean, one of the things that, that we've been saying for years is what a company should do with that huge, overwhelming volume of data, which can tell, you know, when you're home, when you're not home, when you eat, whether, you know, think about what we post to Facebook. You know, my daughter has acne. She doesn't have acne. She, what college she goes to, did she get drunk? That's all data. Companies have to remember information for customers, not about customers. By that I mean to benefit customers. So this gets down to even tiny companies. If you run a, a, a little retail store that sells dresses, for example, in girls' fashion, you know, a customer should be able to tell you, gee, I really like that cute blue dress, but I don't have $90. If you're ever willing to sell a size 4 for, say, $55, Tell me and I'll buy it. Or better yet, just send it to me and charge my credit card. That's an example of remembering information for customers, and pervasive memory makes that possible. The challenge is to change how companies think to say, wow, we already know so much, so let's use that. Let's create new ways of, of making money. Let's create new ways of serving our customers, and let's also be darn sure that we're using that information to benefit customers. Because if we're not, if we're just using that to benefit us and we're using it to track customers, that's not a, a sustainable business model, as we would say. In other words, people will get mad and they will not do business with you. So what's your response when you go into these companies? And, you know, you're the experts. Um, give us some examples of the responses that you get to, to, to what we've been talking about. Michael, you want to do that one? Sure. Um, when you're working with a particularly a larger organization, as Bruce and I both tend to do, there's a, a general sense of you know, dis-ease, and uh, that is dis-ease, uh, and, and uncertainty when it comes to understanding how to, to deal with this. Uh, you know, we propose a framework in our, in our book uh, where we exhort companies to act smart. Uh, essentially, there's a way that you can go through a series of processes, starting with you know segmenting your customers, modularizing products and services. I'll go into all these right now, but ultimately, 
it's putting together a series of steps that allows them to start with the most basic understanding, which is one of the things I mentioned earlier, really getting a handle on who your customers are, not just from the perspective of what their value to you as a company is. That is, you know, what is the lifetime value of a customer? Is this customer worth $100 to us, $300 to us, or might we lose money on this customer? But also from the standpoint of the wants and needs of that customer, you know, from the outside in, how do your customers group in ways that you can look at and access and understand their wants and needs and do so in a manner that's going to allow you to customize products, services, uh, interactions um, in, in, in ways that are, allow those customers to uh, really benefit from the information that you as an organization have. So, and Michael, give me an example of that. Because was, is that the segmented population of your customers? Like, is that what you're talking about? Like. If you think so, for example, there's a there's broad segmentation um, where an organization says these you know these customers are all customers that we make a lot of money on. Uh, like think about a bank, a typical bank, you'll have a, a segment of you know corporations or wealthy individuals that the companies make lots of money on, and then that might break down to a, a segment where you make some money, uh, another where you don't make that much, and, and some customers where you don't make any at all. So kind of basic segmentation from a value perspective is taking your full customer base and breaking it into chunks that allow you to analyze those chunks, those buckets, from the perspective of what customers can give you. Can I just jump in here for for one second? Yeah, Yeah, go ahead. One one good example is what computer manufacturers a number of years ago did where they realized that the education market was different than a corporate. They, They used to treat colleges and high schools as Different, it's basically the same as businesses. Okay, well, they will order 100 computers at a time. And then they realized that, that if they could treat education market differently, if they could say, wait a minute, if we could get everyone in a college to buy Apple computers, and we could essentially have that relationship for life. And so Apple went in aggressively into the education market and said, this is a completely different market, and we're going to deal with it differently. It means setting up stores. It means doing discounts for people. It means... You know, having uh, people help the colleges to 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 take care of all these Apple computers, it's it, it's a it's a really brilliant strategy because what it does is it says, okay, well, what's this group of customers? What do they want? And how does I mean, basically, this works best when you can say this group of people are really different from every other group of people, and because of that, we're going to figure like for us in a restaurant. If you say I'm a foodie versus I'm um, price conscious. The people who are foodies, who, you know, we're talking about $14 glass of wine, who would think $14 glass of wine, that's ridiculous. I never drink $14 glasses of wine. I only want wine that is $200 a bottle because I only want the 1994 vintage. If you know that, you won't try to sell on price to somebody who wants to be sold on exclusivity and quality. And doesn't this fit in, uh, you know, yes, that's an... Interesting concept, obviously, but you also have the world that you're selling to. There are so many different, I keep, I would, you know, I call them demographic segments or whatever. So you have a whole population, a world population that you can sell to who want, you know, $200 bottles of wine and then who want $10 bottles of wine. And, and by the way, where can you buy a $50 dress? I'm, it, you, <laughs> 
I, I'm not sure <laughs> where that sale. is, but the blue $50 dress, not sure. But anyway, uh, but still, so you have, and, and also the age cohorts, I mean, are, they extend from, you know, 10 to, to 110 in terms of buying and buying power. Well, what, what, one of the things that we're saying, too, and, and you know, we probably won't have time to go in depth to all these different forces, but one of them is, is digital sensors in smart customers, stupid companies. And that's going to open up. So but by that I mean if you, for example, look at a smartphone and you say, you know, it has a camera in it, it has a microphone in it, it has an accelerometer, which lets you tell whether it's shifted side to side. Increasingly, the GPS uh, capabilities will get better, so you'll it will be able to know not just that you're, you know, standing in your studio, but your studio is on the second floor of a building, or you've moved from room 301 to room 305. When you get to that level of capabilities, the services that are available, no company on earth exists to do them. And these, you know, for example, digital sensors are spreading right now. There's going to be more sensors than there are smartphones and pagers and PDAs and iPads and laptops combined by a huge extent. And, and so every single company, every single industry, that the whole point of smart customers, stupid companies, is needs to reinvent itself now. You need to look at your own business now and say, how do we cope with these four forces? What do we do differently? And exactly what you were saying, Catherine, okay, so look at this marketplace who do we serve today? Who would we like to serve? And what can we do for them that no one is doing yet? It's well, an enormous race, basically. And in order to do that, uh, what about, and I know one of you teaches or is an adjunct professor at uh, UC Berkeley in the at business school. Are, are business schools addressing um, these influences that you describe in the book, these disruptive, these four disruptive forces that you call them? Um, is this something that, like, the top business schools, like Berkeley and Stanford and Wharton, do they talk about this? Well, the, the short answer is that this is all part of the discussion, but the, the area where, where I work, I, uh, I mentor and guest lecture in the entrepreneurship school at, uh, at Haas. And what we do is we work with student groups that are essentially building companies. Every company that is being started, every venture, as we describe it, is trying to find a gap in the current market. How do we create a new company around opportunity? And those opportunities are increasingly clustering around things like digital sensors. You know, how do we leverage sensors? How do we leverage data and information to create new products and services and to fill gaps in the market that exist right now? How do we better understand customers and deliver customized information to them. Now you think uh, Pandora, for example, right? Each of us has the ability to customize our music feed. So it's our personal product, our smartphones. We've personalized our smartphones and it's sensors and the ability to create our own experiences that drive that. Yeah, all I need is my, I don't need my boyfriend anymore. I have my smartphone. You have everything there. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure my that iPad, works, but... yeah. We wouldn't take it quite that far. Um, no, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just joking. Uh, we only have a cut. We have, well, I guess we have a few minutes left to get to the last one um, because the, the last one that you describe in the book, the last force of the four disruptive forces, uh, the physical web. Who wants so, to take that? Yeah. Right. So the physical web is 
is really the combination of a lot of what we've been talking about. It's what is happening as we take the way the web works, which is everything is linked together, but it's basically on a computer, and extend it to the real world so that everything, I mean literally everything, your rose garden, your house, your bedroom walls, your company, your car, everything is linked with people, with ideas, with places, with thoughts, so that your your rose bush text messages you when it needs to be watered, or better yet, it just tells the water sprinkler to turn on because it's dry over here. When the, you're, you get an automatic message because your son, you're working and your son comes home from school at 3 o'clock, and when the back door opens, it text messages you and says, good news, yeah. Timmy's home. You know, and this, everything is going to get wired. <laughs> this is not science fiction. No, uh, you're saying it's not science fiction. I'm thinking the brave new world as as you're talking. We have to say goodbye. We did get through all the four disruptive forces. Fascinating stuff. Really great book. Smart customers, stupid companies, why only intelligent companies will thrive and how to be one of them. And you've learned how to do that today with Michael Hinshaw and Bruce Kasanoff, co-authors of the book. Um, We can go online, bookstores everywhere, Amazon.com, a website you want listeners to go to. Sure, it's uh, smartcustomers.com, uh, and the book is actually only available right now at Amazon. Oh, okay, it's only available at Amazon. Got it. Right. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Listen to us every Wednesday from 10 to 11 Eastern live, and we archive the show at the end of the day. Hope you had a great morning. Have a good weekend. We'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.